morning, everybody, and welcome to Rise Up, Voices from the Front Lines. Today's episode, is I have a special guest, Dr. Meredith Moran, and she is here to talk with me about some of the challenges that we face as mental health practitioners working with, primarily with first responders and military personnel. And Meredith has a background in law enforcement. So she comes with a unique cultural competence and can give you guys a really full inside out perspective of what it means to serve first responders and how we can all as practitioners learn to do more and be better in service to those who serve country and community. So please welcome Meredith to the show. Good morning. Good morning. How are you today? I am wonderful. It's it's a beautiful week in Texas. Everything is like absolutely perfectly bright, sunshiny. <laughs> nice. It's very hot in Florida, so. <laughs> right? Florida is my second favorite place to be. Okay. <laughs> it's very similar to Texas. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Is the humidity as high in Texas? Yes. Unfortunately, okay. that's the one downside. Yeah. So let's do something. I know we talked a little bit about your profession and what you do now in the introduction, but let's talk about your childhood a little bit. What did okay. you want to be when you grew up? At 15 years old, I said I wanted to be a cop. That was that was kind of, I don't remember prior to that. I mean, I'm sure maybe when I was little, I wanted to be a princess. Probably not though, because I was kind <laughs> of, I was kind of a tomboy. Um, in my neighborhood, it was, mo I think I was probably the only girl in my neighborhood full of boys. So we did, a, I did a lot of, you know, riding bikes and playing in the mud and, um, had horses growing up. So, you know, lots of, lots of that muddy boy stuff. Um, but yeah, at 15 years of age, I kind of said, and probably before that, I, I said, you know, I want to be a police officer. This is what I want to do. Was um, that a family, uh, a family history or that's something you came up with on your own? It's kind of something I came up with my, on my own. My, my dad was a physician. Um, my mom owned her own businesses. I had, um, two cousins, like second cousins that were in law enforcement, but nothing that was, that was my history. That was my influence. Um, yeah. I don't know where that came from. It just seemed like that's a cool thing to do. Um, As clear as day, you're like, that's just what I'm going to be. <laughs> yeah. That was, there was a whole plan of, you know, I was going to work, local law enforcement for a few for some time and then become a fed and then retire after getting my doctorate retire and and teach criminology at a university that was the at 15 that was the whole life plan um i joined the police explorer program when i was 15 years old I did that um till i was 21 and yeah that was that was the plan. 
That's amazing because most of the police officers that I talk to, they're challenged by the what comes next. They don't see what happens after police work. It's, it's not something they considered an ending of. So that you went in with that, that predisposition that this is a pathway to get to this other place. Yeah. Extremely I mean, healthy. Yeah. I mean, clearly it didn't work that way <laughs> because <laughs> mental health counselor was never in the equation. So, so clearly the plan, I always say that, you know, when you make a plan, be careful because the universe is going to laugh at you and go, yeah, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of, I run in a lot of circles with coaches and counselors, and there's a lot of talk about uh, the law of attraction and, and some of that. And I'm a science-based person, so for me, I will always come to those arguments with, you know, it's not some magic woo-woo thing. It's you're setting a focus and an intention, and you're making a goal, and you're taking action towards that goal. So uh, that's my idea of what law of attraction looks like. So the end game changes, but you're always taking action towards something that improves yourself and takes you in the direction you desire to go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that. I, I don't know that that's how that's, I don't know that that's necessarily how I ended up here. Um, it was more of some things that derailed, but yes, the, because of the derailments, I, ended up on a different path and I'm, I'm happy to be where I'm at. Right. We so. make our decisions based on what we know in the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> new knowledge makes new goals. Yeah. <laughs> what was your experience of working in law enforcement? So, like I said, I was a police explorer for a number of years and then I went off to college and got my bachelor's degree. Um, and then when I came back, I ended up getting hired back with the original department that I was a police explorer with. Um, they sent me through the police academy and then I worked patrol for six and a half years. And it was, it was a great experience. Um, you know, when I came back to the agency, I came back knowing people already. Um, I didn't, I, I didn't have a lot of those problems of like necessarily proving myself as a woman type of thing um, that you hear about. Um, I had really great field training officers that pushed me and, you know, let me prove myself as a, as a police officer. Um, and so, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I loved, I loved what I did for six and a half years. <laughs> So you're, if I, if I'm hearing you correctly, in your experience, you didn't have that lower the standards for me kind of ideology in your department, that your expectations were lower than others and that that kind of set you apart and you had to prove yourself that you could actually do what other people could do because the expectations weren't there. Yeah, I, th I think the expectation was, can she can, can this individual do the job? You know, I, I distinctly remember our pepper spray, pepper spray training. Cause that's when pepper spray was just starting to come out. And so there were four of us in my recruit class and it was optional. 
And so I remember, you know, yeah, I took the hit of pepper spray and there was one guy who didn't. And that was very telling about kind of where his career went, you know, and how people thought about him. Um, and it was a big event. Like the recruits are getting, the, the rookies are getting pepper sprayed. So everybody came out of the building to watch. <laughs> right. Um, That's the of your mental game. Like, yeah. That is literally to prove what are you willing to do? Yeah. And that was, you know, that was a big deal. And, and I remember that we only had one hose for some reason and I couldn't find the hose. And then somebody had the hose and I was like, if I could see you, I'm going to fight you for the hose type of thing, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, it was, I think, in a lot of people's minds, there was like, okay, the the rookies that are willing to do that are going to step up. Right, right. They're um, willing to do whatever it takes. Yeah, we didn't have tasers back then. It, only only sergeants had tasers back then, so I didn't have to. Uh, I didn't have to do that. So, but I, I do remember when my husband went through taser training when they first got tasers. Um, <laughs> At that point in time, I was with the police academy, so I knew a lot of his trainers at his agencies, and he was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not taking the ride. And one of the trainers was like, oh, well, your wife would. And I was like, absolutely not. I wouldn't do that. I know. <laughs> I'll take a hit of pepper spray any day, but I'm not doing that. So. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's so I have funny. my limits. <laughs> so you were married to a law enforcement officer as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, so when I, six and a half years into my law enforcement career, I developed pretty severe test anxiety and I couldn't qualify with my firearm. Um, I'm not somebody who has ever been a natural shooter. It's always been something I've had to work at. And I just, the more, the more we went through that process of me trying and not qualifying and getting sent to the psychiatrist who, you know, he was like, this is test anxiety in a real situation. I have no doubt that she's going to perform, but this is test anxiety. But the more I went through that, the more self-doubt there was about all of these other areas of law enforcement and, and, you know, my confidence in the job. So I ended up resigning my position um, my department was great. They were, I had been a dispatcher previously and they had said, you know, we'll, we'll put you into dispatch and let you work there. And when you qualify, we'll put you right back on the road. And I just, at that point, I was so in my head about everything that I was like, nah, I got to move on. Um, and then I ended up teaching at our police academy. So I got a faculty job at our local, our down here, our police academies, for the most part, are run by the junior colleges. Um, so I got a job there and became a reserve deputy and got through the qualification process, all of that. It was during that time that I met my husband, and he is a deputy sheriff. So, or well, I that's, that's the man who would become my husband. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really interesting topic to talk about too is that i i have uh, i've been working with first responders for gosh almost 20 years and 
I feel like the best marriages are those that have first responders that pair up. And it doesn't really matter if it's, you know, an EMT that's working with a law enforcement officer or a firefighter that's married to a law enforcement officer. But there's a, a cultural understanding of the stress and the experiences and they know how to communicate to each other naturally because they're in the family. Like there's this language and culture. And I mean, we say culture, but that's people that are outside don't really understand that it's, it permeates every aspect of their lives. So it's, did you guys feel that it was easy to talk to each other and to get through the stresses of the day in, in your relationship? It was, I, so when I first started in law enforcement, when I first became a police officer, I made a pact with myself. I said, I'm not going to date cops. I'm not going to marry cops. I'm not going to do that. Um, and then I tried dating in the civilian world. And, you know, you, I would kind of paint a broad swath. I would run into to two types of men. And it was either those guys who would be like, oh, you're a cop and you can kick my ass. Or <laughs> those guys who'd be like, do you got handcuffs? Right. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And I'm like, I'm not doing this. You know, this, there, these people don't have a clue what I'm going through. And so, yeah, that's, you know, my husband and I bonded over tattoos. Um, and then it kind of moved on from there. Um, now I will say that at, you know, 18 years in, we are, we are separated now, um, pending a divorce, but, that's because we kind of have drifted into, you know, with me becoming a mental health counselor, we've kind of drifted apart in that sense into kind of different areas of language and, and stuff like that. But yeah, that was the initially the attraction. I mean, it was actually the, the day I met him, we were in in-service training and of course, I we had to qualify on the firearm and I was struggling with it. And he he ended up hanging out after everybody left, waited for me. And then we ended up talking on the phone for like two. Oh, actually, I think we went out to dinner that night. And then ended up talking on the phone for like two hours the next night. So that's kind of how it started with him checking in on me when it was like, OK, she's struggling with firearms today. So I always said I wouldn't date officers too. And then I ended up with a firefighter. So mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. sometimes it's just inevitable. <laughs> See, the great thing about firefighters is that every 48 hours, they go away for 24 hours. <laughs> so that I was always like, that's, that's a nice gig right there. They're just, they're, they're gone for 24 hours and you can kind of have the house to yourself. <laughs> there is a level of independence. Yeah. Uh, and people ask oftentimes why we're so close and we don't spend 24 hours a day together. We have a right. lot of time apart, even still. Uh, and he's retired, but now he's in because he's used to that lifestyle. Now he does the long haul truck driving and, and really big problem solving heavy haul stuff. So he wants the big challenges that no one else can take on. And yeah, you know, he wants to do all the, all the dangerous, scary stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Still, he's still the same exact person, uh, that risk taker, you know, give me all the challenges, give me the hard stuff. Right. Uh, but he still has all of that time away from home where 
uh, that's what suits his lifestyle. Yeah. And that's when we, um, when we first got married, um, my husband was on midnight shift and I was working day shift and, uh, yeah, I would say that it's great because five days out of the week, I got the bed all to myself. <laughs> that's when he still worked. They still worked eights. And I was like, yeah, five days out of the week, I, I can starfish and have the bed all to myself. And then and when I, you're home, you can love, <laughs> you can give right. an affection and, and, all that good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Goodness gracious. So let's talk a little bit about, we've already kind of broached it a little bit, but what is so unique about first responder culture? How is it different than mainstream culture? Well, I think there is a level of hypervigilance that comes with the job. There's a level of after you've been doing it for a while, I just, I just read um, Kevin Gilmartin's. Uh, well, I can't remember the name. Emotional survival for law enforcement, because um, I'm getting ready to teach a class um, at the college, and uh, he really talks about this idea that you know when you first get into law enforcement, your everything is bright and shiny, and you're eager, and you have that little bit of naivete where you're like, I'm going to help the world. And then as you progress, you realize that or you start to get this idea that everybody's an asshole. It's, you know, and, and I have to be on guard 24 hours a day. The world um, is a dangerous place. The world is a dangerous place. And I think if we don't mitigate that in our own minds, if we don't seek out the positive stuff, then we get mired in that idea that, you know, everything is, everything is horrible all the time. And I think that's a huge part of the culture. Um, and then also the idea that I can't, the stigma of mental health and, you know, I, we don't talk about this stuff. We don't. And I think that's getting better, but, you know, there's that stigma of, the world is a horrible place and I just have to suck it up and deal with it. There's no place for me to offload this. So I'm just going to shove it down until it explodes into something that is not good. Right. <laughs> and we talk a lot about the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder or, you know, uh, occupational traumatic stress from the disordered perspective, but there's a lot of symptoms that come into play long before diagnostic criteria are met. So mm -hmm. what are the, what are the warning signs that people can look for super early on that might suggest that they're not coping with the stress of their work environment as well as they could be? Well, I like to look at acute stress disorder versus PTS and I, I, I'm moving toward PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury, um, just from the standpoint of when, when we say disorder, especially with first responders, that, that word has a connotation of, I can't get rid of this. Right. But when we talk about post-traumatic stress injury, this is something, this is an injury that has come with what you do and we can heal that. Um, but I think we also have to look at this idea of acute stress. 
disorder and some of those early warning signs of, you know, am I, am I starting to isolate a little bit from my friends and family? Um, am I, do I have friends outside of the job? You know, we, we become this insul insulated thing where the only people we associate with are other cops. And that just perpetuates the cycle of trauma and stress. Cause what do we do? We tell war stories and we do that over and over and over again. And so we're never out of that. Um, so, you know, am, am I starting to isolate away from people? Do I, am I looking over my shoulder a lot more? Um, am I starting to be more irritable? And sometimes it's also listening to the people in our lives who care about us because we may not see it, but they see the changes. Right. You know, is my, how's my sleep? Am I getting decent sleep? Um, you know, all of that stuff that comes before that starts to build up to, okay, now this is a major problem. We talk a lot about drugs and alcohol, mm -hmm. but we also tend to ignore uh, some of those other elements that can, that can come into play, uh, risk-taking, uh, pornography addiction, spending, mm -hmm. like how, how responsible are we being with our money? There's like all these different additional elements that we don't talk about because those make it really easy to make personal judgments about people. So in, in your experience, what other, what other signs might you notice? What other behavioral things might pop up that, that are less commonly understood? Yeah, well, and I worked in addiction. I worked exclusively in addiction treatment for 12 and a half years before I came into private practice. And here's the thing. Addiction is addiction is addiction. And the idea behind addiction is that there is something else that I'm, I'm doing that is making my brain have that chemical pop. That, that dopamine pop, that serotonin pop, that, that pop that makes me feel good. And if I'm not getting that from my everyday life, then I'm going to go seek things out. And, you know, first responders are become adrenaline junkies anyway. If you, if you don't get into it, you become it. Um, and so, yeah, doing risky behavior like, you know, I'm going to get a motorcycle and speed all over the place or... Uh, I mean, and I, I don't know if it's risky behavior, but I mean, my husband always drives like he's um, qualifying at Talladega. It's, you know, <laughs> that's just like, okay, we're, we're going to die in traffic today. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, am I drinking more? Um, am I? Yeah. Pornography is a big one. Um, or, you know, being sexually risky, um, you know, there is that concept. I don't know if it's still a concept today, but back in the day when I worked, it was, you know, badge bunnies, <laughs> you know, and you, you could always go to, you know, especially if you're a good looking male cop, you know, you can go to a bar and, you know, you 
find somebody and say you're a cop and they're that's your hookup for the night. You know, and am I am I using that to substitute real connection with people? Um, gambling. Uh, yeah. How I spend my money. You know, especially with, you know, when I first started and I had really I had my parents were really good about, you know, setting us up for having good credit and but you know you get the you get rookies in that have never had any they've never had a decent paycheck so it's like i'm getting a new car and i'm doing this and i'm doing that and why am i broke all the time um you know and not looking toward there's a future where you may not have this paycheck anymore you know, either retirement or you get injured or something like that. So I think we need to be talking to our rookies about that and financial, financial wellness. It's all part of this idea of mental health and mental wellness. So that's one of my favorite topics is shifting gears from the idea that we're talking about disorder and we're talking about illness and we're talking about even even injury, like all this stuff on that end. Um, what if we talked about it more from a wellness standpoint, from mm -hmm. a, these are the steps from the very beginning uh, at yeah. pre-training, like in the very beginning, if we started having these conversations about this is what your life could look like, this is what it can look like if you actually choose to take care of yourself yeah. on every level, because yeah. it is all connected. You know, we talk about cardiovascular disease and diabetes and all of these other health conditions that the, that the chronic stress and the eating habits and all of that on the job can can create. So like all of it's connected, their financial literacy, their relational literacy, their ability to uh, take care of their physical person, their their passion and purpose and, and what comes next after the job and identity mm -hmm. creation and all of this stuff. If we have the ability to talk about it all from a positive perspective in the very beginning, what do you think the outcomes would, how do you think the outcomes would change if that was normal? Well, I think, yeah, I think that's the, the big point is normalizing. Um, normalizing this idea that, you know, while this is a great career, and you're going to have a lot of fun and you're going to help people. You're also going to see some stuff that your brain isn't meant to see on a regular basis. And we have to take care of ourselves. You know, we drill in, you know, in the, in the police Academy, you get, I don't know how many hours of defensive tactics and physical wellness training. You know, when I went through the police Academy, we had defensive tactics almost every morning and we ran before we did that. Um, and so it's drilled in to recruits that you, you got to keep yourself physically well. You know, there's, I think my husband had posters in his gym. That's, you know, the picture of the convict in the jail lifting weights and they're like, he's working out. You should be too. That idea. Um, but we don't talk about when I taught at the Academy, they got four hours of stress awareness and and resolution and it was and it was like these are these are stressors and these is this is things to watch out for and you know it it wasn't 
something where we said, hey, you, you got to take care of your brain, too, because your brain and your body take are, are that meshes together. Right. Yeah. And we never talked about financial awareness. No. Never talked about, hey, what do you do with your money? Right. Um, but yeah, I think if we talked about it from the standpoint of. Yes, there are bad things that might happen, but this is how you prevent them. This is how you maintain a healthy body and a healthy mind. Um, then I think that there might be a little more buy-in to it. Um, but also putting it in language that, that first responders understand. You know, I don't necessarily talk about um, four count breathing. I talk about tactical breathing, right? combat breathing. Because right. if we put tactical or combat in front of anything, cops are going to pay attention to it. <laughs> right. Well, and the funny thing about breathing is uh, oftentimes I have people, it, it's one of the first things that you got to teach people, of course, and they're very adverse to it. They have this idea that, well, I don't meditate. Well, it's not meditation. We just need to get your nervous system on board with the same thing that your mind's on board with. You know, mm -hmm. you got to get your body in sync. Yeah. So if you were holding a rifle and you're, you know, a sharpshooter, you're expecting to hit your target. What are you doing first? You, you breathe. Have to calm your breathing. You have to calm your nervous system. You got to keep from shaking, right? You know, these things make you function better. Right. They'll make you hit your mark. They'll make you, you know, get those awards. Yeah. If you want to be good at your job. <laughs> you have to practice your techniques the same way. It's exactly the same process. It's yeah. fine tuning your system to work efficiently and effectively when those demands are high. Mm -hmm. And then how to come back when those demands are not high so that you can reset and turn things off, right? Right. And when I talk to usually my first when I'm in a session with a client, the the obviously the first session is, hey, let's get to know you and why you're here. But my second session is usually psychoeducation about how our brains are wired, how that wiring changes with trauma, with anxiety, with the stuff that and it's it's very science based. Um, obviously, if you if we come at first responders with this woo-woo mentality, you're going to shut them right down. But I look at, I, I'm very science-based that this is how neurotransmitters work. And this is what happens when we experience something and, and that gets locked into our emotional memory. And then when we experience something similar, our, our brain goes to that Rolodex and pulls out Hey, you know, this looks like that. So I have to react the same. And then I tie it into something that we do. I, I you know, I, I talk about, you know, tap rack drills. You go to firearms training every year, you do a thousand tap rack drills so that you don't even have to think about if my gun does, if my gun malfunctions, it's automatic how I do, how I fix that. Yep. And I tie that into this is what your brain does under under stress is it it pulls from that emotional memory and and reacts because the frontal lobe the thinking brain 
isn't involved in any of that. And, yeah. and, and then I have people who sit back in the chair and go, okay, so I'm not crazy. Right. So, no, you're just, your brain's overstimulated. We can fix this. This is not an issue. Right. I love that you mentioned that uh, the mechanical aspect of working with first responders, because one of the first things I recognize shifting, I used to do a lot of work with victims of human trafficking and domestic violence, which was very heavily female oriented mm -hmm. and working with a lot of women who've suffered, you know, extensive previous trauma and are not in the trauma now. And are, like, those are very different perspectives. And, and you could say to, to women in that circumstance, you could tell them that the tools and resources, and they didn't care why they didn't need to know right. what it was doing for them. They just needed to know that they felt better or they felt more calm where with first responders, they don't like tools and resources, generally broad sweeping terms here, but they don't like tools and resources if they don't have a why that mm -hmm. makes sense to them. It has to be worth their time and energy and effort, and there has to be a known outcome, right? Like, this is the mechanics of how this works. If you do this, this is what will happen. And then they're like, okay, I can, I can do that even if it feels awkward and uncomfortable and weird at first. Exactly. If there's a reason for it and a mechanical explanation, they're usually okay with it. And it's a, it's just a different way of presenting it and packaging it and, and different language. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And when you, so yeah, that, so that first session is always, this is the mechanics of your brain. And then I can move into now what we want to do is we want to figure out how to shift from this emotional brain that's always on to this thinking brain that we need to have on. And then I can move into breathing and relaxation. We're going to start with those two things. If we relax our body, thinking emotional brain doesn't feel like there's any danger around it goes to sleep, we can be in thinking brain. If we breathe in a certain way, emotion, and I, and I will say, when we're bought, when our body is tense, emotional brain takes that as a sign that there's danger. If I'm hyperventilating, emotional brain takes that as a sign as there's danger because that's what happens during fight or flight. So if we counteract that stuff physically, then emotional brain says, okay, I'm safe. It moves to the background, knowing that it's there when we need it. And we can be in that cognitive thinking brain moving through life. Yep. So just for my, just for my entertainment, a lot of the people that are listening won't know what this is, but, uh, it sounds like you focus a lot on nervous system arousal and, and neuroscience. Do you, do you feel grounded a little bit in like, now I'm going to forget his name. I read a lot about it a long time ago. So the polyvagal theory, does mm -hmm. that play out for you? Yeah. I, I, I like Stephen Porges' stuff on polyvagal theory. Um, I took a class, um, so I'm also a certified trauma professional and the class that I took was taught by 
and now I'm going to forget his name, Eric Gentry. Um, and his stuff is very grounded in this idea of rewiring the brain. And he falls a lot into polyvagal and Stephen Porges' work. So that's a lot of the stuff that I pull from. Um, yeah, I, I love that I'm a, not a neurobiologist by any stretch of the imagination, but I love kind of that science behind this is how our brain is wired and this is how we can rewire it. Right. What other modalities do you find really useful in, in working with first responders? Um, I also use ART. So I'm, I'm certified in accelerated resolution therapy, which is an offshoot of EMDR. Um, and I, I really like using that. I mean, I use that with anybody who has trauma, but I really like using it with first responders because it's, we can really pinpoint this is what's, this is the thing that's bothering me. This is the thing I'm having nightmares about. Okay. Let's fix that. And then open up the idea that, Hey, now that we've fixed this thing, other stuff may come up and we can fix those too. Um, and usually once I do a session with a, a, an ART session with a first responder, they're pretty much on board with, okay, yeah, let's do that. Right. Right. Yeah. So I'd use a lot of, uh, internal family systems and hypnotherapy, uh, which is an offshoot of EMDR basically also and, and timeline. So a really similar concept that we let them choose the direction that they're going. We let them choose whatever is bothering them and just kind of mm -hmm. relax into it and, uh, process, the memories outside of the trauma experience so that they can be filed away where they belong instead of filed away in that reactive <laughs> part of the right. brain. And uh, I'm actually, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, it's just, it's so amazing to watch how, how quickly and effectively people can process information in a controlled environment where they feel safe. Mm -hmm. And it's getting to that place where people feel safe is is yeah. our biggest challenge i think as practitioners and that's yeah. probably that the biggest importance of that um that cultural competency piece is is can you connect with the first responder lifestyle uh and, and do they feel safe with you mm -hmm. and if you're not of the lifestyle you have a lot more work to do to to bridge that gap and to create that sense of safety for them. Some people just naturally are perfect at it, even if they have no experience. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who have no skill in that area. And, you know, we both have had experiences with clients who come in and they're like, I had the worst experience with a therapist. They didn't understand me. We mm -hmm. couldn't connect. We weren't on the same page. Uh, even some who have said, like horrific things that should never be said or therapists that cry when their clients tell them, you know, about this experience that they've had. So what are you noticing uh, in, in the therapy environment that your clients are coming to you with their experiences that were less than positive? And in what ways can we do better to help train people who are not of yeah. the lifestyle? I have heard every single one of those stories. I have heard the therapist cried when I told her about this. And then I had to now become the caretaker. 
I heard I had a firefighter once who was dealing with burnout and he had like five years to retirement and his previous therapy therapist said, well, you should probably just quit your job and find something else to do. No. <laughs> um, you know, so yeah, I think that for me, I mean, I had a client recently who, who said to me, you know, I'm glad I found you and that you have the experience that you have because I wouldn't talk to anybody else. I've had other experiences and, and you, you know, and I, I have first responders who come into my office and they'll, you know, they'll drop an F-bomb and be like, oh God, so I'm sorry. I'm like, don't, don't worry about that with me, dude. That's my favorite word in the English language. You speak your speak. Um, I'm, I'm with you all the way. Um, but I think it's, you know, if somebody wants to, again, I have that unique opportunity in that I worked in the job, I married into the job. You know, I, again, I've been around cops since I was 15 years old. I, I pretty much grew up in the police department as a teenager. Um, I think for somebody who doesn't have that experience, going out and doing ride-alongs, you know, get out in the community and, and talk to your local agencies and say, hey, can I ride along with an officer and see what's going on? Um, down here, Hill, in fact, two weeks ago, I just did it. Hillsborough County Fire Department does a one-day clinician training that is an immersive, so you, the first half of the day is, is um, classroom, talking about culture, talking about you know, all the things firefighter. And then the second half of the day, you break into teams and you do different exercises. One of the exercises, they put us in full bunker gear with an air pack and we had to go into the smokehouse. Luckily they didn't smoke us out. So that was good. But we had to crawl in the smokehouse, find a body and carry it out. Um, and then go from that to a CPR location where it's like, okay, now you've just done that for three hours in bunker gear and now you got to do CPR and a guy for 20 minutes, you know, and kind of really immersing people into this idea of this is what it looks like on a daily basis. Yeah. And, you know, kind of getting the brain to think about Oh yeah. So I, I was in bunker gear for 15 minutes and I was sweaty and uncomfortable and couldn't breathe well and felt off balance. And these guys are doing that for two to three hours on a fire. And then maybe I have to then transition into a rescue position where now I have to do CPR on somebody, you know, or, or, you know, I go, I finish that fire call. I don't even get to go back to the house and change and shower. I go straight to a medical call where now I have to, I have to transition to life-saving BLS or ALS stuff while I'm still got fire on me. Um, and it was a great training, even for somebody like me who I hung out at my firehouses when I was, a cop, you know, I would take them ice cream and they would feed me on occasion. It was always fun. Um, and I always taught my recruits, be nice to your firefighters, because when you're hanging upside down in a ditch after you flipped your cruiser, 
they're the ones that are coming to save you. So be very nice to your firefighters and your paramedics. Um, but even for me, it was an eye-opening experience. Yeah, so immerse yourself in any way that you can mm -hmm. practically and not getting in the way and not being a pain in the butt. Right. But there, like, there are a lot of citizens academies and there are emergency rooms that will let you volunteer. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you what, clean up a trauma bay after a major incident and you will think differently. Like right. there's, there's moments that you can experience that will connect you to the lifestyle, to having an understanding uh, of what it truly means to be immersed in the first responder world. And right. like you, I have the, I have a unique experience where, you know, I started in an emergency room. I got to work right next to law enforcement officers. I, I'm law enforcement adjacent because I'm a civilian investigator, but uh, just working back to back with people who are, you know, running out to go do a domestic violence call and then they're coming back to, to do something else. And, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and then, cleaning up an accident scene where they're they've lost a two-year-old and and they, they just immediately change gears and knowing yeah. that these people have the the mental capacity to literally respond to the problem solving ability is so extensive and so well trained but the emotional side of them is is so neglected oftentimes that like they can solve a problem in two seconds flat but they don't have a feeling about that problem they right. they're so rapid to respond that they don't connect to their own somatic experience. They're not in their bodies, they're in their heads. And and having to retrain people to connect into their bodies again and into their emotions again, it's extraordinary work and they're extraordinary people, but it definitely takes, it takes a unique set of life experiences to understand mm -hmm. and to truly connect. So. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think there are more people like us out there. Yeah. <laughs> there are so well, many more, more, so many more. <laughs> so many more. Well, and I think one of the things that you said about going out and, and observing without getting in the way. Observe. Don't don't try to, you know, don't get back in the car and go, hey, let's talk about that call and, and let's pro don't just let them do what they need to do. Because if I'm on duty. I don't want to process my emotions because I've got to get to the next thing. I've got to get through my, whatever it is, eight, eight, 10, 12 hour shift, you know, the, in that moment, yeah, I got to shove all that stuff down. I don't have time to process. I can't be an emotional wreck, but I think then giving, making sure that people have tools you know, and people have trusted tools. So do you have a peer support team at your agency that you trust? Um, do you have, you know, my first responders, I tell them, hey, if you need something in between sessions, shoot me a text. I will get back to you when I can. You know, they understand my schedule. But yeah, shoot me a text and we'll talk. Um. So oh, that's a good point about working with first responders, the standard boundaries of therapy, this, the, the general consensus of we have our session and then we never talk again until the next session is not realistic in the first responder world. No. And I think some of the other standard boundaries of, um, you know, self-disclosure, you, know, you never self-disclose, 
You know what? I self-disclose all the time with my first responders. I talk about medication management. I talk about how I've been on medication for years because of my depression. And, and you know, this is what medication does for me. Um, because if I want to introduce medication to somebody, there's that stigma for first responders that, no, I can't do that. So right. I... I am open about a lot of my self-disclosure. I'll talk about, you know, if it comes up, yeah, this is why I left the department. This was some of the stuff I struggled with because they have to understand or not understand, but it, it gives the first responder that level of comfortableness where it's like, okay, she's been where I've been. She's seen what I've seen. Um, I'm not alone and I'm not crazy. Right. Yeah. And there are things that we can do to fix, to, to fix the injury. Right. You know, and come back. You know, I was, I was, and I go to the medical model a lot. You know, I, when I talk about medication, I go to a medical model. I go, Hey, you know what? If you have heart disease, you're going to take a pill for the rest of your life in order to keep your heart working. Why are we so, why are we so stigmatized about I have anxiety or I have depression and this thing, this pill is going to help balance my brain so that I'm not dealing with that. It, you know, and nobody has to know. I mean, you have to report to your, your department that, Hey, I'm on this medication but you don't have to tell your peers that, oh, yeah, I'm on depression medications now, unless you want to. You know, right. Um, right. almost 80 percent of the population. Right. Know, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I had somebody come to me. She's not a first responder, but yeah, talking about she's got diagnosed with adult ADHD. And I'm like, yeah, you're in, you know. A majority of the population. It's not a, it's not a weird thing. Right. It somehow always feels better when it's not just us. <laughs> right. Yeah. Misery loves company, right? <laughs> exactly. But it's also, you know, okay, this person gets me, you know, and I think if we're, if we are, if a clinician is closed off, and, you know, they're not going to get anywhere. The first responder, I had a, I, one of my clients recently asked me, um, are you in recovery? Cause he's in recovery now. Um, and I said, no, I'm not in recovery myself, but I've dealt with alcoholism in my family. So, you know, I understand that dynamic. And then I told my story about leaving the department. And, you know, the, this, you know, that whole thing about the stress and the, you know, as that built the self doubt that came with, if I can't do this, I probably can't do these things either. And he was like, okay, that's good to hear. Thanks for, you know, he was kind of really positive about, yeah, okay. It's good to hear that, that that's where you come from. Sometimes I think the only thing that separates, 
I never went to alcohol or drugs as my coping strategies. I had other coping strategies that were unhealthy, but the only thing that kept me from those things was just, I don't know, luck, predisposition, whatever it was, I chose a different pathway, but I still chose an unhealthy coping strategy. So it's really no difference. Like, right. Take your pick. There's a long list. And addic- like you said, addiction is addiction, whatever we choose. So when someone yeah. says, oh, well, are you an alcoholic? No, but I, I know the experience of addiction. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I, I have been in those places where there was a necessity for uh, something to take me away from the reality of the existence that I was in. Right. right? So, so do we know that feeling of, of putting our hands up and going, this is too much. I don't want to be here. How can I not be here? How can I not be present in this moment? How can I not experience these feelings? How can I, you know, shove it down a little better? Right. How can I go for just one more day? How can I get through this? It, it's the same process. It's just a different tool. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, I definitely, definitely think connecting uh, in that way is another difference between standard, standard accepted practice and, and mm-hmm. the reality of working with first responders. Uh, for me, another one is getting out of the therapy room, like not, not sitting in a, in a, I'm a doctor. You are a, um, you are a patient kind of right. concept. It seems to work better in my experience if we're equals and we're working through a process together. And I just happen to have tools and resources that you can use that you may not know about. Right. So coming at it from a peer-to-peer perspective uh, seems to work better for me in that really deep connection because that's what's necessary to move things forward is that I understand you, you understand me, we're on the same page, let's move forward together. Yeah. And, and I mean, really different too than the normal therapy relationship. Yeah, it is. It's you know, leveling that power dynamic. And also, I mean, I've had my doctorate since 2008. Being called doctor still kind of, it's, there's still, when people call me doctor, I'm like, what? Oh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> there were years that I didn't wear it. And then somebody finally made me put it on and go, yes, you're, you earned that, you're going to wear it. Um but I don't, and the only reason I have a doctorate is because I have a master's degree in criminology. And then when I started with the college, I was faculty. So they were like, well, you should get a doctorate because that's how you grow as faculty. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. And went and got a doctorate in counseling. Yeah, it's, I don't plan very well for anything. It's my whole life is like, okay, I'm going to do that now. At least my adult life tends to be like that now. It's like, okay, I'm going to maybe get a doctorate in counseling and help cops and then not knowing how licensure works or anything like that, you know, and then, Oh, I'm going to get a private, I'm going to join, have a private practice. No idea how to do that. I just dove in. <laughs> this is what I want. Yeah. It's, you know, outcomes later. <laughs> yeah. I just dove in and, and luckily I hooked up with some very practice savvy people who became friends and mentors and, have helped me along. But um, yeah, so I don't really, I don't really wear the, the doctor when I'm with a first response, when I'm with a client, it's, you know, call me Meredith. I don't care. That's, that's who I am. Um, 
you know, I have some people who call me doc and that's fine. You know, whatever you want. Um, but yeah, the, I agree that I think you have to be, you have to be grounded and you have to be more open and willing to share your stories with first responders so that they have that comfortability factor of, okay, been there, done that. So a personal question, do you still identify as an officer? I do sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. I haven't, I left the department in 1999. Um, and then I was only a reserve deputy for about three years. Um, but yeah, I do. I still sometimes say us or we, when I'm talking about law enforcement, um, yeah. So there's, there's still a huge part of that. That is part of my identity. I love that. It's, I mean, it, it speaks to the intensity of how impactful on the sense of self some mm -hmm. of these roles can be. Um, a lot of people, when you talk to them and they have just a job, they don't, they don't say, Oh, you know, I'm this, they, they'll say, you know, oh yeah, I work at a factory or, oh yeah, I work as a truck driver. They don't say I am a truck driver very yeah. often. So you find that there's like these shifts in language uh, and, and it is sometimes subtle and a lot of people wouldn't notice it, but there is literally a, if I ask you what else you are, you might not be able to tell me. And that's the downfall that you find with first responders who we start to see again, we, we start to identify completely with the job. There's, you know, there's no other job where my friends introduce me as this is my friend Meredith. She's a cop. You know, you don't do that with, this is my friend Jane. She works at Seven Eleven, Right. So, and, and again, I was just having this conversation with a client about, you know, you get so wrapped up in that putting on that coat of first responder that we forget about all the other coats that are in the, in the closet. You know, do you still put on the coat of parent or spouse or child? Um, do you still, you know, what are those other parts of your identity that now we've, we've put away in a closet and we don't play with them anymore? Um, and I think that's part of what gets first responders in trouble is because over time we get so identified with this idea of I am this thing that we forget that we are multifaceted people and that we are many other things. And we have to, we have to change out those coats every once in a while. I had a client who came up with the coat metaphor and I was like, I love that. Um, you know, and sometimes we wear more than one coat at a time, um, which you don't ever do in Florida, but yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's heavy and burdensome and challenging. Yeah. So the metaphor, the metaphor holds really well. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think we, and, and then that, it goes back to that idea of self-care. It goes back to that idea of, you know, do I have friends outside of the business, outside of civilian friends? that can keep me grounded? Do I have hobbies that are not job related? I always say, go into the firearms range 
is not a hobby. <laughs> the gym and the firearms range. <laughs> yeah. Those are not hobbies. Those are great. Do those. Go to the gym. Keep yourself strong. Sweat out your toxins. Go to the range. Keep your skills up. But those aren't hobbies. Hobbies are I fish. I golf. I make Lego castles. I, you know, do model car, whatever it is. Job, things that assist you in your job are not hobbies. And we it's need hobbies yeah, outside of, do what? It's still job focused. <laughs> it's still job focused. Yeah. I mean, do those things. I love it. Go to the, go to the range, go to the gym, love it, do that stuff, but get hobbies that aren't job focused. And this goes to why there's so much vulnerability at retirement to why we see such high suicide rates at retirement is mm -hmm. that, that lack of that abrupt ending of identity. And then mm -hmm a big gaping hole where they don't know who they are anymore. They don't know what they are anymore. And there's no reason to get up in the morning anymore. Yeah. Like that passion and purpose and that sense of, of helping and, and having some place that is important, something outside of ourselves that is important uh, just disappears. And yeah. that planning is so important. That plan B that we were talking about at the very beginning that you went in so strong and so intelligently knowing that this is a career that lasts this long and then I'm going to do something else afterwards. Yeah. Having that knowledge already that something else also has to come from this. Like, what else can I do? What are my skills? Mm -hmm. And I think we always have, I think we have to have a plan B from day one, because again, I didn't do a 25 year career. I did six and a half years and had to do something else. You get injured. I mean, I, I've I've got friends that had career-ending injuries. Okay, so what am I going to do now? What is that plan B? And I think you got to have plan B from day one. Yep. Um, because you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, you may go a third. You may do a thirty-year career without any problems whatsoever. Probably not. But it could happen. But you may get, you know, your third day on the job, you may get into a car accident where now your back's all out of whack and you can't do this anymore. So there's got to be a plan B. So this can only be an opinion-based question um, and an opinion-based answer. So, of course, for all you out there, what we're saying at this point is completely, you know, our hopes, dreams, desires, and, and visions mm -hmm. for the future. Do you think there is a way forward to change the statistics on divorce, suicide, domestic violence, and addiction in first responder families? Absolutely, I think there is. But I think a lot of things need to change in the system. Um, I think we need to be teaching recruits from day one better skills. I think we need to be that wellness has to be a top down situation in every agency, that it, it has to come from the chief, the sheriff, whoever is the top of the agency, and it has to run through. And there also has to be a there has to be a no tolerance policy for anything other than wellness. 
you know, any of those, those people that are like, oh, this is bullshit. I'm not, you know, just suck it up and, you know, suck it up, buttercup. That's, you know, no, there has to be a no tolerance policy for that stuff because that one person who says suck it up, buttercup can screw it up for all the other people around them. Because if that person is trusted, then it's like, well, why am I doing this wellness thing? If this guy says, well, just suck it up and you'll be fine. Right. You know? So yeah, I think they're absolutely, I think, yes, there, there's absolutely hope, but I think there's a lot of things that have to change across the systems. Agencies have to be open to, Hey, if an officer needs help and they ask for it, we don't punish them. You know, if an officer has to go to a 30 day treatment program, we don't bring them back and and then go, okay, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to put you on the desk and we're going to take your special assignments away from you. And because the minute I see that happen to somebody, I'm not, I'm not asking any of you people for help. Yep. Um, so yes, to answer your question, I think there is hope. I just, I just think we have a long way to go. And I think that systems have to change throughout the entire culture. Absolutely. So any last words of wisdom before we, (laughs) before we shut down for the day? Um, You know, I always say, and it's kind of cliche, but I always say that understand that it's okay to not be okay, that there is help available. You, and, and, you know, when you seek out a therapist, you don't have to stick with the first therapist you find. If it's not, if it's not resonating with you, go find somebody else. I guarantee you that therapist will not have hurt feelings because you're like, this isn't working for me go find a therapist, you know, it's like finding a gym, you know, you may go to three different gyms before you find the one you're like, okay, this is cool. I'm comfortable here. You may have to try a couple of different therapists before you go, okay, I'm good here. Um, and that, you know, emotions, we don't have to sit in our emotions. My, my calendar today actually says it's okay. You're overwhelmed. It's appropriate, not permanent. So, yeah, it's it's okay to not be okay. It's it's not a permanent situation and there's there's help available. I think we could even almost say go further and say no one's okay. Like, no. Therapy isn't for the broken and the devastated and the unfixable and the like we, everyone can benefit from tools and resources and living a better lifestyle. So mm-hmm. like there's no shame in protecting your assets. There's no shame in being stronger, faster, better, more skilled. So if we can just recognize that we all could use Mm -hmm. some better skill development. Yeah. And I say that all the time. Therapy is not necessarily for when there's a crisis. Therapy is for, hey, I need somebody to talk to, to, to offload this stuff before I go home to my spouse, because Yes, I talk to my spouse about stuff, but I don't want to traumatize my spouse. So let me talk to somebody who I know is prepared and professional and can I can offload 
the the horrible ickiness and then i can go talk to my spouse about my job without traumatizing them or you know yeah i'm starting to feel a certain way let me go talk to somebody about that before it becomes a crisis right another little notation because all you all out there all wanting to help people and having this sense that you never want to be a burden and you don't want to ever put anything off on other people. We are trained to take what you have to give us. We know how to put it down and we have resources in place so that we are not burdened by whatever you say. There's nothing you can bring to us if we are doing what keeps us healthy. Right. There are therapists out there counselors, whatever. There, there are practitioners out there that don't know how to take care of themselves, just like there is everyone else out there that doesn't know how to take care of themselves. But I always say, ask questions. Does your therapist see someone? Does your counselor see someone? Do they have their own support system in place? Mm -hmm. Because we have the same needs that you do. We just have the skill set in place to process the information in a healthy way. And if we're doing that, there's nothing you can bring us that we can't handle, yeah. that we're not ready and prepared to handle. So your offloading your stuff on us does not burden us. Right. It doesn't affect us in a negative way when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing to keep ourselves healthy. And if yeah. we're trying to tell you how to keep yourself healthy, then we better be able to keep ourselves healthy. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So please note that you are not a burden. Your stress is not going to stress us out. That That's literally what we've gone to school for many, many, many years and practiced for many, many, many years to learn how to do. Absolutely. That's how we help. That's how we serve the community. Yeah. So uh, you are not a burden to us. And, no, not at all. And you are not broken. <laughs> No, not at all. I, again, you know, this idea of, of post-traumatic injury, you know, when we when we break a bone in our arm, that bone, that bone heals and it and that place where it heals is stronger than it was before. So yeah, you've you've got an injury to our brain systems. And we can heal that and make it stronger than it was before. Um, but I also tell first response, you know, try to find a culturally competent therapist. Um, because, yes, there are a lot of people out there who are very good at what they do, but they aren't used to, hey, I had to scrape this body up off the ground yesterday and, you know, all of that. Um, so, yeah, try to find somebody culturally competent. Right. Find somebody that signed up for that work. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us today. How can yeah, people connect with you um, if if they would like to work with you? Um, Absolutely. So I'm I'm only licensed in the state of Florida, but I can see anybody in the state of Florida. I do telehealth. So if you're in the state of Florida, you can connect with me. I'll see you. Um, my website is www.flwellness.org. So it's frontline. If you just type in frontline two words wellness, you'll find me. Um, people can also call me on my cell phone, 
And I will put you, when we get our resource list on our website, I will put you as a vetted resource Sounds for, good. Um, for first responders, because uh, obviously <laughs> you're very knowledgeable and you're very prepared to handle our first responder population. So I will list you there as, as a resource for our people. Uh, and please, if you would like to reach out to one of us, uh, I will put the links at the bottom of this podcast. If you're not in Florida and you need a little help, uh, please reach out to battle to be or one of the other resources that we have listed. Uh, we've talked to 147 different practitioners on this, on this podcast. So awesome. there are people out there for you, no matter where you are, uh, and people that understand you. So if you've seen someone and it's not working for you, don't give up. There is someone out there for you. There is resources out there for you and you can get the help that you need and the support that you need that feels comfortable and appropriate to you no matter what your experiences are. So again, please reach out to one of us if you need to. Uh, and I will put all of the links so that you can easily find us. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Krista. Thank you so much for being with us today on this episode of Rise Up Voices from the Frontlines and have an amazing week and I will see you next week. If you love this podcast and want to support it, please go to battle2b.org, B-A-T-T-L-E, the number two, B-E.org, and you can make a donation or click the support this podcast button wherever you watch this podcast.